everybody? If you were here last night, welcome back. If you weren't here last night, just curious, so I, I have an, an idea. How many of you, this is like first time, okay, good. I want to make sure you get an on-ramp of where we're at tonight. Before I do that, though, I just want to ask, raise your hand if you're uh, summer staff, like support staff, you're, you, like you work here over the summer, raise your hand. I just want to say thank you guys for what you do. So years and years ago, I said uh, on Sunday when I introduced myself and my wife and I uh, met working at Forest Home uh, Christian Camp, and those two summers we were in program staff. So we were in those kinds of roles that were up front and kids saw us doing things with, you know. And, uh, but my first summer at Forest Home was cooking in the kitchen all summer long, getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning, sometimes spending four hours prepping cartloads of ham... Uh, grilled ham and cheese sandwiches that someone else was going to cook for the lunch shift. And it was a brutally tiring summer, but I was so aware that summer of all the things, accommodations is what they called support staff, changing sheets every weekend. And, and the day that we, one day we had off in between weeks of camp, you all had to go to work cleaning all the cabins for the next, anyway. So I just want to thank you guys all, because right now, if I were you week six, I would might probably not have been at chapel. I would have been tired, I would have been getting a shake or going and sleep early, and I, I appreciate you guys being here tonight to, to learn from God's Word. Um, so t for those of you who are just diving in tonight, we're, uh, for, the next, for last night and the next three nights, going to be in the Gospel of Luke, looking at, uh, last night we saw a, a, a scene with Jesus interacting with Jairus and this woman who came up behind him in a crowd for healing with her timid faith, but we're looking through these four passages in uh, Luke uh, with the view toward thinking about how we grow in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that we all, those who are believers, who God has made alive together with Christ, given us his spirit, he describes that as we with unveiled face. He's opened our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And now beholding the glory of the Lord, Paul says, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The, the image of Adam that we were all born with is slowly being erased, and we are being reconformed to the glorious image of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I mentioned on Sunday morning when I mentioned what we were doing is two things I love about that verse. It encourages me that it's a slow, gradual process, right? It's from one degree of glory to another. And even what we sang here recognizes sometimes that degree goes, feels like it goes back because it says we're prone to wander. So, Lord, let your goodness like a fetter, like a, like a handcuff, like a shackle. Lord, in your goodness, would you keep me from just abandoning ship, right? Bind my wandering heart to thee because I'm prone to wander. I feel that I'm prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart and seal it. And as you guys were singing that, I was, I just want to, this wasn't planned, but I think that the author of that hymn had at least this verse in mind. I love in 1 Peter 1, after it piles up all these glorious things that are still to come for us, this uh, living hope, this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us, there's this little phrase that says, kept in heaven for you who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And I think Peter's saying um, he's the one ultimately that's going to get you to that inheritance. If it were entirely up to us, none of us would reach it. But the grace of God doesn't just save us and put us in Christ, but brings us all the way home. So we can rest assured God's, even tonight as we're gathered here around his word, the Holy Spirit can use his word to guard, like Peter says, to uh, guard us by faith for this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, and in this we rejoice, etc. So, so each of these passages, we're thinking about 
how, how, what are we seeing about the glory of the Lord Jesus in this passage that as we keep beholding him, we are going to be transformed. We are going to reflect more and more sincerely that image uh, in us. So tonight, if you would turn to uh, Gospel of Luke, you know, Two years ago, I didn't need glasses at all. I used to brag and boast to my wife who needed glasses. And it was like over a month. Anyone else that just like went like that? One day I realized I couldn't get my Apple Watch far enough away from my head to understand what any of these things. Anyway, so I got cheaters here. So I'm gonna, they go off and on, and it's kind of a hassle. But um, turn to Luke uh, chapter 12. We're going to start in verse thir- 13 tonight through 31. It's a parable with a little bit of narrative introducing why Jesus tells it. Um, but I wanted to just start by asking you to, to all be honest with me. We've all had these kind of moments, but think for a minute. When was the last time you caught yourself in some sort of situation with the thought, looking at someone else, what they had, and you thought, man, that would be the life. I mean, we've all had those moments, right? You're, just, you're looking from the outside, you're like, oh man, if I had that. My in-laws live in Moore Bay, which is a beautiful place to live. They retired there about 15, 16 years ago. So thankfully, we have a f- granny and grandpa's house for us is looking at the bay, which is awesome. Anyway, so we, we go up there a lot, especially in the summer. And uh, one of our favorite places to sort of drive from there is just north one town to Cayucos, which is just north of Morro Bay. And there's a great dog beach just south of the pier. And so last year on 4th of July... We were up there over the 4th of July week, and on 4th of July, we decided we were going to go to Cayuco, so we drove up, and we had to park all the way two miles south because there was no parking, and we brought our dog, and we just walked along the beach, and there's these high bluffs, if you've never been here, with just amazing beach house after beach house. Some of them have these, like, three-tiered balconies coming down the cliffs with their own private stairways onto the beach, and because it was 4th of July, as we're walking along, so usually we go up there, and nobody's on any of them, but 4th of July, everybody was out, and smokers were going, and you could smell ribs, and hear music, and people playing cornhole up there, I mean, and with this amazing, like, 180-degree view of the Central Coast, and over the two miles of us walking our dog up to the pier, I realized as we got to the pier, like, my envy inside muscle was just like, I just kept looking at these houses thinking, oh, I wish I had that. Oh, that would be just so awesome. And my discontentment with what I had just kept growing. And I got to the pier, and I'm like, what's going on? You've had those kind of moments where you just ca- get caught up looking at what someone else has, and you just think, man, that would be it. I don't know for you what it is. Maybe it's driving through a neighborhood of homes that you'll, you would never be able to afford. If you're under 30 and you live in California, you, you can relate with that, right? The last two years, I have more good friends. My brother and sister-in-law moved to North Carolina because they realized I'm never going to buy a house in Southern California. But maybe you, you drive through neighborhoods and you're like just looking at houses and you see the price on it. I could never have that, but oh man, if I had that. Maybe it's not material things, but Instagram, social media feeds this in us because we don't just see the stuff people have, but the experiences that they have, right? And the relationships that they have and the opportunities that they they have, and we can scroll through them and just like binge on, oh man, that would be the life. We look around at others and see the relationships they might have. Maybe you see someone who has a spouse and you would love to have a spouse. And, and, and that's not the Lord's timing for you right now. And inside you think, if I could just be married, that would be the life. If I could just have children, that would be the life. 
if I had friends like I see other people have, if I had physical fitness like that person had, if I had better health like that person had, but God has given me this set of health struggles. Or you look over your neighbor's fence and you just say, I wish I had a few less trials than them, but God just seems to have dealt me a heavy hand of trials. Whatever it is, we've all experienced this, this temptation to look outside at what other peoples have that we wish we had or feel we, we deserve or at what people don't have that we wish was off of our plate and in our heart think, if only, right? Well, this passage here and the parable Jesus tells is to confront this inclination that we all have in our sin nature, this discontentment that leads to coveting, right? That's the, the word Jesus is going to use for it. So let me read it. I want to pray again that God would give us eyes to see here what he wants for us tonight. We'll move through it here. Luke 12, 13 through 31. Someone in the crowd, so Jesus has been going around teaching and crowds have been following him. So this is sort of mid-teaching. So this is an interruption. Like last night, Jesus was interrupted while teaching. Here's another one. So he's teaching. Someone in the crowd yells out rudely, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, not just this man, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully so he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, you're the one who, you're, you're the reason that the Bible says that it is living and active. No other book on earth is living and active because no other book on earth have you made the promise that your living Holy Spirit, whenever we read it in private or in public, your Holy Spirit illuminates and guides and convicts and encourages and comforts through it. So Lord, would you do that work tonight in us, uh, in your word? Help us move one degree in the, in the right direction, into the image of Jesus. That's what we want. Amen. All right, so here's how I want to break down this, this little scene here is to say there's three men in this scene that I want us to pay attention to. Each one has a lesson, I think, for us. There's the guy in the crowd who interrupts Jesus with his demand, and we need to pay attention to him because we're all more like him than I think we care to admit. And then there's this man in the parable. It's very unlike the man in the crowd on the surface, but as we're going to see, at the heart, they're really the same man. And we need to pay attention to the guy in the parable because Jesus tells the parable so we don't end up like this guy, right? This is a bad ending parable, right? This is one of those don't be this guy parables. And finally, we need to 
pay attention to the man that's called teacher, right? Hey, teacher, demand. You know, he makes his demand, but he's a teacher. And the reason he's teaching these crowds is he wants them to know the good news of where abundant life is really found. And that's why he takes this guy's demand and says, that's not what I'm about. Let me tell you a story. So when the the guy who wants us to have abundant life tells us where abundant life is found, we should pay attention, right? All right, so three men. Lesson number one, the man in the crowd. The lesson for him and for us is this. It's really simple. Covetousness is deadly. Jesus wants us to understand covetousness is deadly. Would it be fair to say coveting is a very Bible-y word? Like when was the last time you used the word covet in a normal day-to-day conversation? Maybe you envy or, you know, sort of, or discontent, but coveting is a very sort of King Jamesy sounding word maybe for some of us. Maybe because of that, coveting, maybe you wouldn't come right out and say it, but coveting for you in your mind, it's kind of a low-tier sin. It's kind of like a misdemeanor, right? It's just like window shopping, right? It's not hurting anybody. It's just, day, you know, you have all sorts of like euphemisms. for It's just daydreaming. It's just, you know, it's like my wish list or whatever. It's my bucket list. But, but coveting is looking over your neighbor's fence at what they have that you wish you had or you even think, if I had that, that would be the life. And Jesus wants us to understand it's not a low-tier sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the tenth. And lest we think it's not as important as things that really hurt people like adultery and murder and theft, the New Testament frequently says coveting is what often leads to those biggies, right? That's where it starts in the heart. Coveting is more serious than we tend uh, to think of it. It's deadly. So look at this man in the crowd, verses 13 and 14. Because this is what Jesus wants him to see. Listen to his demand. There's this crowd of thousands. They're here to hear the good news that Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus is saying, he, he tells us repeatedly, the kingdom of God is at hand. Listen. Here's how to enter into it. So that's what the crowds are gathering for. But he has a totally different agenda in this, than this crowd. He's not even listening. He can't hear it. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we might think, did he have a legitimate claim? Did he have a jerk brother, the oldest, and he was just withholding it all and he wasn't? Maybe. Doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. He doesn't stop and say, well, tell me the facts of the thing. Let's sort this out. Does he have a legitimate claim or not? Jesus doesn't really care because he's not really asking Jesus to make a, a, a judgment. He's already coming with his demand, right? He doesn't say, hey, teacher, would you look at the evidence and sort this out? Am I being... He says... Tell my brother, right? He just comes demanding his thing. What he's saying is, my portion of the inheritance is more important than the rest of my family, including that brother. Because think about it for a minute. If this oldest brother had the inheritance and had to divide it right then, it probably meant he would have had to sell whatever, their farm, their, their estate, their, their holdings, so that he could divide up the, 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 the cash from it and, and give this brother, his portion, hurting the whole family's, whatever, inheritance, right? And so this demand is even potentially jeopardizing his uh, brother, but he doesn't care what his brother may gain or lose in this as long as he gets his portion. And Jesus is looking at this guy, and he's so much more concerned with what's motivating this demand than whether or not he has a legitimate claim. And so Jesus says, basically, that's not my job. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not going to arbitrate here. 
Because I'm way more concerned about something different than you getting your portion of the inheritance. He hadn't come to settle legal disputes. He had come to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. While Jesus is teaching, and this man's making his demand, he has set his face toward Jerusalem, and he is teaching his way to the cross where he's going to suffer for the sins of the world, for our covetousness and all the things that, that, that flow out of that. People are perishing if he doesn't go to the cross. And he's preparing people to receive him and understand so that when he goes to the cross, they'll get who he was, right? And this guy is totally missing it. All he can think is inheritance. I was trying to think of an illustration to, to capture what I think Jesus is feeling when this guy comes with his demand and Jesus says, son, I'm not an arbitrator. That's not why I came. This is the best I could come up with. Imagine you're on the deck of the Titanic just after the iceberg has struck. And it's clear it's going down. And it's panic and people are making their way to the decks and they're scrambling. And you're a deckhand. And your job in that moment is to help get as many people onto lifeboats as possible. That's your job. And it's chaos. And they're all coming through and you're trying to make judgments. You're getting them on there as fast as you can. Watch your step. And a guy comes pushing through the crowd and says, hey, I want to talk to the captain. This maiden voyage of the Titanic was expensive. This was not cheap. This isn't what I paid for. I want a refund. If you were a deckhand, what would be going through your mind right then? Brother, your priorities are out of, out of whack right now. Your refund will do you no good at the bottom of the Atlantic. You need to get on a lifeboat. Here's Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And here's this guy saying, give me my portion of the inheritance. And he's like, that's not why I came. You need to get in the lifeboat, and your tunnel vision for your brother's portion of the inheritance is going to keep you off the lifeboat. You're going to miss the ship. That's mixing metaphors. Anyway, you get the point. What you're concerned about, guy in the crowd, is going to be the death of you. It's going to lead to you perishing. In a similar way, whether or not this man has a legitimate claim, um, his desire was deadly, and Jesus saw it. It's like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, a snare, into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Covetousness is deadly. And this man's covetousness was completely blinding him to the glory of Jesus that was standing right in front of him, offering him the door of life. To use another analogy from Jesus' teaching, this man is a classic example of the thorny soil, right? What was the thorny soil? The seed is landing, and it can't take root because the thorns choke out the seed. And Jesus tells his disciples, the thorns are desires and cares for the pleasures of the world, and they choke the seed of the good news out from taking root and bearing fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Before we're quick to distance ourselves from this man, we need to recognize we've all got this man in us, right? Maybe it's not about an inheritance, but you know what it is for you. Those things that you can be tempted to feel like, if I could just have that, that would be life. And sometimes it can blind you to where life really is found. 
Are you ever tempted in your mind to reduce Jesus to a divine arbitrator who exists to use his sovereign authority and rule to rule in your favor in all of the affairs of your life, and you kind of resent it when he doesn't? When things don't go your way, when you take a loss or a hit and your neighbor doesn't. Because Jesus is saying, that's not my job. I have something better for you. I think we're more like this man than we care to admit. And the reason I actually say that even is right here in the text. Because notice, this man makes his demand. Jesus says, I'm not an arbitrator. And I would expect him to then say to this man, let me tell you a parable, sir. But verse 16, look at it. And he told them a parable. He he uses this guy's demand and interruption as a teaching opportunity for everyone. Because I think Jesus recognized this guy's not the only guy in this crowd who might miss the lifeboat because of the covetousness and the love of money in his heart, right? So he tells this parable to all of them. He gives the whole crowd the warning, and he does it with a ground for his warning. So he gives a, re- here's, a, here's, a true, here's a thing that is true, and because it's true, you need to be warned. And then the parable illustrates the truth. So let's look at him first, the warning. Verse 15, he says, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. When it says all covetousness, what that should make us stop and think is go, wow, we can covet just about anything. It's not just money. It can be material things like people's cars and clothes and the vacations that they get get to take and the latest devices that they have, and you're still making that old one work with the crack on the screen or whatever. But it can be all kinds of non-material stuff. In fact, it often is, isn't it? People's talents and skills, and you feel like God short-handed you. The opportunities people have, and they've been closed doors for you. Sometimes all covetousness, I think, can encompass things that you've never had, but also things that you used to have, but you don't anymore, and others still have, things that you lost. And there's there's a resentment that God took that away, and it's gone. But Jesus says, take care and be on guard. Take care means don't be blind, don't be asleep, be watchful. So that means as Christians, we should be paying attention to our hearts. And when we have these moments that we're aware of that covetousness, it's telling us something about something our heart thinks is going to be real life, and it's not, right? So take care, he says. I was thinking about this today as I was paddling on the lake, thinking about this message. Um, Tim Keller uh, used an analogy that I heard a long time ago, and he, he was talking about anxiety, not covetousness. And he said, anxiety is kind of like smoke, And where there's smoke, usually there's fire. And so whenever I'm anxious, he says, that should help me take a step back and say, there's some temporary thing that I'm putting too much hope in that's on fire right now. It's somehow it's being jeopardized, and that's what's causing my anxiousness. I've set some of my hope on something that can't deliver that, that's shaky, that's not eternal. I was thinking about that today, and I thought, covetousness is another form of smoke, I think. When I feel covetous, I feel coveting, and I feel that desire. It's a, it's a combination of lack of contentment and a longing for a thing that, that is going to perish. 
But I think in this moment, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make the difference. It's smoke that points me back to something at its root. That's why Jesus says, take care. Be at watch. When you feel covetousness, eyes open. What is it about that thing that you think is really going to give you life? And then he says, be on your guard against it. So don't just be watching out, but actively be repenting of it, right? We should be actively repenting. Martin Luther said the Christian life is a life of repenting our way forward, right? You don't just repent when you get saved and then the rest is just trying to be obedient. Our whole life is repenting our way forward, turning from sin when we see it, being on guard against it, right? More than just eyes open, it's repenting of it. And here's why Jesus says, look back at the text, covetousness is always fueled by a lie. And the lie is this. Jesus says, um, sorry, let me back up. It's fueled by a lie that's going to choke out the truth of where abundant life is. Remember, Jesus says, I came that you might have abundant life. So when he tells us, let me tell you where abundant life is found, we should listen. So look at the man in the parable now, verses 15 through 21. So the guy in the crowd helps us understand covetousness is deadly. Now the parable, come, parable comes and teaches us this, that all who treasure riches above God, so we invert the order, riches above God, or as we're going to see, that's really making riches your God. They're going to suffer the fate of this fool in the parable. So here's the truth that Jesus says, that we, the, or the, sorry, the lie that he says, that if we don't believe it and we, and we miss the truth of abundant life, we're lost. Look at verse 15b, the, ha- the second half. Jesus says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So that's the ground for this parable. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So if you turn that around in the negative way, to believe that it does is to treasure riches above God, or really more accurately, riches are your God. Riches are where you say, that's where life is. Whatever riches mean, physical, material, non-material, whatever. The lie is, life consists in an abundance of possessions. God doesn't factor in. You know, in Ephesians 5, just again, covetousness isn't deadly. He's listing sins in Ephesians 5 that he says, if this sin characterizes your life, not just if you sin in this way sometimes and you repent of it and you keep fighting to, 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 to not sin in it. But if this characterizes your life, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And some of them are the ones that we would expect to be there, right? Like the sexually immoral and the impure. But you know who else Paul says? If, if this sin characterizes your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Everyone who's covetous, parenthetically he says, in other words, an idolater. So covetousness is not a lower-tier sin. Covetousness is the greatest sin. The first command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second one is don't create any other idol in his place and worship that, right? Covetousness, he says, is idolatry. Because if covetousness characterizes your life, what you're saying is life is found in things God has made, not in God. And we're going to see this in the man in the parable. And we're not alone. We're all bombarded with the message that life consists in abundance of possessions all day long, especially social media. Uh, I went a little while back on Instagram, and I searched a hashtag, good life. I just assumed if someone took a picture or a video, uploaded it to Instagram, and added the hashtag, good life, they're making a statement about something about this is where the good life is found, right? 
It wasn't everything, but you could probably imagine what dominated the feed. Food, fashion, watches, motorcycles, fancy cars, travel destinations, cruise ships. I mean, it, it was just, I kept scrolling through. It was just all an abundance of possessions. I found one that was a sports car and this really good-looking couple standing, and the Eiffel Tower was in the background. It's like it had sports car, travel, and physical fitness, like all lumped into one as the good life, right? And Jesus says, that is not where life is found. It's just curating the best bucket list and ticking it all off. But we're all tempted to believe at times at a practical level that it is, aren't we? Or is it just me in here? Is it too hot in here for us to agree with that? Okay, yes, okay, we're all together. You won't find abundant life there. So to convince us, Jesus tells us a a parable. Now, think about for a second for the guy who made his demand and then the parable that Jesus tells. If you're paying attention, you might think, wait a minute. Jesus' warning is to not be covetous, but his parable is about greedy hoarding. The guy in his parable isn't like the man on the surface who's coveting his portion. He wants his portion of the inheritance. The guy in the parable is in the opposite situation, right? He's got way more than he ever needs. He's a greedy hoarder. Why didn't Jesus tell a parable about greedy hoard or about coveting to the covetous guy? I think that's because at the root, these two guys are the same thing. They both believe the same lie. They both believe that life is found in the abundance of possessions, right? The guy demanding his part of the inheritance is saying, if only I have those possessions, then I'll have life, right? And as we're going to see in the parable, the guy who has more than he needs, it's never enough. He still believes that life is found in the abundance of the possessions. So the parable, he tells this guy a parable about the guy that he thinks if he was that guy, then he'd be happy. So here's the parable to pop that guy's bubble, right? So let's look at the parable. The man in the parable is who the man in the crowd would like to be. But the irony is all the abundant possessions that this guy in the parable has are about to slip right through his fingers, and the implication is probably into the covetous hands of his children who are going to fight over it, like this guy in the crowd. So here's three things I want us to recognize in this parable Jesus wants us to know. Riches will never be enough. If you treasure riches above God, it'll never be enough. They're more temporary than you think. And in the end, they will not commend you to God when you stand before him as judge. That's all in this parable. Let's look at it, 16 through 19. Here's this man, and his land produces plentifully, verse 16, more than he needs. And let's, let's not paint this guy as a bad guy yet. At the beginning, Jesus doesn't say anything about this guy. He got it all from ill-gotten gain. He was, he's not a tax collector who had gotten it by cheating all of his fellow you know, Jews out of their money. He's just wealthy. In fact, probably at the beginning of the story, people probably might have thought, this guy's a godly guy, right? They they tended to think that God blessed those who were walking in faithfulness. And so this guy's wealth probably was a sign that, that God was pleased with him and was blessing him, right? So at the beginning, he's not presented as like a shady guy. He's just wealthy. But the problem comes in verse 17. The question, with all the success, and he says, okay, what am I going to do with it? Then we realize, oh, What's under the surface? He realizes, I've harvested more than my barns can hold. And we begin to see that his belief that life is found in abundance of possessions emerges. Notice he gives no acknowledgement as he looks into this bumper crop. He's already wealthy, and now he's got a bumper crop. And there's no mention of God in this. We don't get any sense that this guy recognizes this as a gift from God. He just sees it as his due, right? He's 
he's been wise and he's a good farmer or a good businessman or whatever, and, 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 and his, his money's just making money, right? He gives no consideration for who else might benefit from his wealth or the abundance, the more than he needs. This guy has only one category for his possessions, and it's mine. If I possess it, it's mine. No one else has a claim to it. Look at all the first-person pronouns suddenly when this guy starts, when he comes up with this light bulb idea. He goes, I know. Here's what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I will tear down my barns, and I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, relax, be merry. All he thinks about with this overabundance is me. He doesn't see this harvest as more than he needs. He doesn't see this as an overabundance. It's just more to have the good, good life with, right? And here comes three hard lessons with what he doesn't see coming. Number one, if you treasure riches as the true meaning of life above God, it'll never be abundant enough. I was thinking, if there's one truth that we all know without the Bible even having to teach us just from our experience in life from childhood, it's the truth that if we think life is in the abundance of possessions, it'll never be enough, right? How many times as a kid you had that one big ticket item on your Christmas list and you're like, that's the one. If that's not under the tree, Christmas is ruined. But if it's under the tree, that's the one. And you, and you save it to last and you open it up. And you remember as a kid, maybe you played with that for a week or two weeks before either it broke or you just saw something new in a catalog if you're old enough to remember what catalogs are or on Amazon Prime, whatever, or Amazon. We know even from, a ch from childhood this idea that, oh, that'll be it. And like by New Year's, you're like, what's next? You know, I, I like to tell this story to embarrass my brother. He's not here. I usually like to tell it when he's around. But my brother is like 10, 11 years younger than me. My sister's nine years younger than me. This wasn't in my notes. I just, I just want to share this story with you just to embarrass my brother because he's not here. But when, when they were really little, my uncle would come to town, and my uncle John was single, and he had a lot of money, and he loved to just spoil the nephews and nieces. And one Christmas, he came with literally a stack of 10 presents for my brother Seth and a 10 presents for Megan, and he got there at like noon, and he put them there, and he said, you can't open until the end of the day if you're good. And man, they were good all day long. And I remember, I was sitting there, I'm old enough, I didn't have any presents. It was just the, you know, the young, cute kids, and I, it was okay, it was okay. Um, he had spoiled me when I was little. But I remember my Uncle John was finally like, all right, go. And they just started tearing through present number one, two, three, four. They get down to the last present, and my brother opens the last present, and he, and he looks at my Uncle John, and he goes, is that all? And my mom was just like <laughs> totally humiliated, like, Seth, is that all? But he, he, he knew that feeling right then, as exciting as that was all day, as soon as that 10th one was open, is there an 11th? And we laugh at a kid being inappropriately greedy like that. But man, we all know this even intuitively that if we think abundance of possessions will ultimately uh, lead to life, we've already tasted enough disappointment to know that's not going to, it doesn't keep us from believing it, does it? I love this image. Nolan, can you put this quote up for me? I like sometimes reading old dead guys like this guy John Trapp from 1600s was an Anglican pastor and commentator. And as I was looking for guys who have said wise things about covetousness, I came across this guy I'd never read. 
and his commentary on Ecclesiastes, which is, you know, Solomon is saying, listen, I had all the amount of possessions and it's all vanity if that's all that your life's about, right? Listen to this, this beautiful illustration he gives that captures the emptiness of an abundance of possessions. He says this, a ship may be overladen with silver even to sinking and yet space enough be left to hold 10 times more. So a covetous man, though he have enough to sink him, never hath he enough to satisfy him. And this is even more vivid for me. A circle cannot fill a triangle. So neither can the whole world fill the heart of man. There is just something. We were not created to be satisfied by the circle of abundance of possessions. We were created, I don't know if you use the triangle even to think of God, the triune God, but we were created for the one who made all of those things. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis who famously wrote, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, in other words, if I find that everything in this world feels like trying to make a circle satisfy and fill the triangle, he says the only logical explanation that is I was made for another world. Or at the risk of, I dare correct his quote or, or uh, make it better, but it's, it's that I was made for the one who made the world, right? It's a longing for the creator of that world. Jesus doesn't want us to want less. He wants us to love, want more. He, and, and, and just recognize the circle's not all there is. It's, it's the triangle. It's the one who made everything. Don't fill the triangle of your life that only God can fill with the circle of abundance possessions. There'll never be enough. That's the first lesson. Look at verse 20. The second lesson is this. If you treasure riches above God, you will learn that those riches are more temporary and fleeting than they seem. That's not exactly the same thing as the first point we just made. The first has to do with our own satisfaction. The second one is outside of our hands, and that is, even if for a while you are satisfied, it is going to be so fleeting. Look what he says to the man in the parable. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? He's a fool because he's falsely assumed he was not only the possessor, possessor of his possessions, but of his life. Not realizing his very life and breath was on loan from God, and God could call that loan to account at any moment. This is, this is a practical question. Do you ever stop and consider that your death might come sooner than later? I mean, the Bible encourages us all the time, right? Right? Teach us to number our days, Lord. That's living with the sober-minded reality that whatever timeline I think I have, it may not be the case, right? Like, think, how many of you have keep a Google Calendar or, a, a, like, my wife has a, still likes a physical one where she writes them all in in pencil in the little squares because she has nice small writing and can read that. I use Google Calendar. Did you ever consider, you may have things on your Google Calendar right now, and you don't know it, you're not going to make that appointment. That's a heavy thought, I know. But I, like I shared on Sunday morning, a couple, a, two years ago, just over two years ago, when my dad passed away as we were cleaning out his apartment, he was like my, my wife, kept you know, in his little physical daily planner year by year, by pencil, all of the appointments, even though he was homebound and, and not doing much work, he was still doing a little bit of work from his computer remotely. And, and as I flipped through there after he had passed away and he literally had phone appointments in his daily planner. He wasn't going to make those. I took over his Facebook account, 
And when his, next, when his next birthday came, two months after he had died, how many people out there had no idea he had died, but the little alert came up on their computer, hey, today's Rick's birthday, and they quickly sent in a, hey, happy birthday, Rick. And I get all these notifications, and I had to like type back, hey, I'm really sorry to tell you the news. That's the point here. This guy in the parable didn't even occur to him that he may have less time than he thinks, and the possessions he thinks that life is found in are going to just pass right on to the next generation. No matter how abundant your possessions are, they're on loan. You got to remember that. But finally, and I think even most significantly out of these three things, it's not just that they'll never satisfy us, and it's not just that they're so temporary, but in the end, they will not commend us to God. That's verse 21. If you treasure riches above God, those riches will not commend you to God when you stand before him. In fact, they may testify against you that you really didn't know him, which is scary. In the parable, when God says, you, a fool, your soul is required of you, that's judgment language. That's not just end-of-life language. It doesn't just mean the rich man died. It means that rich man stood before God and gave an account of who is the true God that you've lived your life in worship of. Turns out it wasn't God, it was riches. Because the treasure riches above God is idolatry, like Paul says. And he says, if that is your idol, if riches are your God, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So what's the alternative? Well, it's to listen to the man called teacher. Look at verse 21. The lesson we learn at the end of this that, that Jesus wants us to take home is that all who treasure God above riches will, uh, sorry, all who treasure God above riches will be truly rich and rich toward God. Sorry, God now, God is up here, right? If you treasure God above riches, unlike the man in the parable, um, you will be rich toward God, which is a phrase I think we might misunderstand. You will be rich toward God doesn't mean um, abundant life is something that you obtain from God if you are very generous to God. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't mean if you're rich toward God, then he will repay you with richness. I don't think it's how it works. For example, in Acts 17, Paul is preaching. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything, for he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and, and everything. God doesn't need any riches from us. He's totally self-sufficient. So here's how, how I think about rich toward God. If living rich toward God is the opposite of living for an abundance of possessions or to lay up for ourselves treasures then rich toward God is the opposite of treasuring riches over God, which is idolatry. So a life rich toward God, it begins by recognizing that God has been generous to us and not the other way around. It's rightly directed worship. It's realizing that he's given us life and breath and everything. Which means rich toward God is a response. It's, it's what happens when we realize how rich God is toward us. We discover that abundant life is founding in knowing and enjoying the God who made everything. It comes from treasuring him above riches. It comes from recognizing we owe our life to him. It comes from seeing ourselves rightly then as undeserving stewards who are blessed with any good thing that we have. And given it not for ourselves alone, but to use for his glory in this world. 
to love others with. It flows out of gratitude that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Even our trials and sufferings. That might have felt like a little left turn here, but, I, but here's what I, I want as we finish here, because I want to help can convince you like Jesus is, that life doesn't consist in abundance of possessions, but in knowing and enjoying the God and the Lord Jesus, who is the richest treasure, more, worth, more worthy than all other possessions. That to know that God, that generous God, is worth everything. Here's how generous God is. Romans 8, 28 blows our categories for how rich God intends to be toward us. Let me explain what I mean. Some of us might have a false understanding of the richness of God's kindness toward us. As, and we think of our lives like in two ledger columns. Here's a, a dividing line. And on one column over here, we put all the things that come to us in our life that we perceive as good blessings. We would hashtag good life, blessing on that. And these are all the things, and those count to God's credit. But then things happen to us in our life or don't happen to us in our life, things that we per not, don't perceive as blessings, and we put those in this other column over here, and maybe we, we wouldn't say it that way, but we kind of resent God for this column. We hold that against him. To believe that God is rich toward us is not to say that in the end, we will all see that this column over here was bigger than this column over here. Romans 8.28 explodes that way of thinking and says, eh. When he says, Paul, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Paul is saying everything on both sides of the ledger are evidence of the goodness and the generosity and the kindness of God toward you. Even the things that you may not see until after you're gone in hindsight, in eternity, all of it counts as God's goodness and riches and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. And so to know that God, to be known by that God, who is that rich and intends to bless us that richly, if we have him, we have everything. Which brings us back here at the end to why Jesus came in the first place, what he had his sight set on that this guy in the crowd demanding his inheritance was blind to. If you're tempted to believe that God is not the greatest treasure, that he's not the greatest giver, that Jesus isn't the pearl of great price, so great that to sell everything and just have him, you win, you just look at the cross, Paul says. The cross is where the selfless one gave himself for the selfish like us. The cross is where we can see, here's the all-sufficient one who had his place in glory but didn't consider equality with God somebody to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we, the covetous and grasping, could be forgiven and beloved and adopted as his and reoriented now in our values to recognize where true riches are found. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul said, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become what? Rich. 
you're ever tempted to doubt that God doesn't want you to be as rich as you can be, but just according to his economy, we're to look at the cross. Christ impoverished himself to the point of agonizing death on the cross, bearing God's wrath for our sin so that we might be truly rich, so that you, by his poverty, might receive forgiveness for all the guilt of all your sin, so that by his poverty, the Holy Spirit would indwell you and begin transforming you from the inside out, restoring God's image in you. By his poverty, you might be adopted, given rights as sons, an inheritance like we began with that's imperishable and undefiled. Through his poverty, you might have until that day, what we said at the beginning, this help and power being guarded by the Spirit so that you don't fail to receive it in that final day. And to tie this back up to how do we become like Jesus as we behold Jesus, those who are enriched in this way and grow in our understanding of how rich Jesus is begin to want to be rich like Jesus is, right? We want to use the riches we've received to enrich others and to help other people see where abundant life is found. We want to be rich toward God. doesn't mean we pay God back. Thank you, God, for all the riches you poured out for me at the cross. Now, let me do you a solid. Let me return the favor and be rich toward you. No, it's I want to pass the riches that I've received from you so that other people can enter into those riches. So the more we behold the one who is infinitely rich, impoverished himself so that we might become rich, we will become like him in wanting to enrich others. We want to steward our riches toward that end. That's the good life. Let me pray for us. Lord, again, when I think of the parable of the soils, we mentioned earlier that it's a reminder that your seed gets planted, but then it grows over time. And so, Lord, I pray that the seeds from this parable and this man and Jesus, the truth he, he gave us here tonight, it wouldn't get snatched up by uh, the, the next fun thing we're going to do tomorrow, and we'll just not give that a second thought, but that we would, sh- we would think tonight. And we think through this week, you would help us to, to be on guard, be on watch for covetousness that dwells within us, that we would repent of it, uh, that we'd recognize how fleeting, how insufficient it is to satisfy what our hearts really long for, and that you would magnify the, the, the richness of Christ and the beauty of Christ as our treasure for us in a way that puts all those in perspective. And you would help us to grow uh, as the people who reflect and echo your generosity in this world with whatever you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.